Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to talk about the role of biomarkers in osteoarthritis. Now, biomarkers or biological markers are biologic measures or medical signs which can be measured accurately and reproducibly in people. Examples of biomarkers can be anything from pulse and blood pressure to more complex blood tests in other tissues. There are different types of biomarkers, including systemic or whole body and molecular biomarkers. And the investigation of these may provide potential targets for developing osteoarthritis disease modifying drugs. On this episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Virginia Krauss to discuss the role of biomarkers in osteoarthritis and in particular, their role in drug development. Virginia Krauss is a professor of medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine. She's a practicing rheumatologist with over 20 years experience in musculoskeletal research, focusing on osteoarthritis. She's an adjunct professor of pathology and an adjunct associate professor of surgery. Her career has focused on elucidating osteoarthritis pathogenesis and translational research into the discovery and validation of biomarkers for early osteoarthritis detection, prediction of progression, and monitoring of disease status. Hello, Virginia, and welcome to the show. Hello, David. It's wonderful to be with you. No, it's absolutely our pleasure, and it's a great privilege to have you along to talk about a topic that is, I know, very near and dear to your heart and of great interest to me, and I hope to a lot of our listeners. 
But before we get into that, just in an effort to try to get to know you a little bit better, I know we've spent some times in various parts of the world together doing different things, but there's always different things that both I can know, but also the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. But in the first instance, can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like for you? Sure. Believe it or not, I started out as a marine biologist at Brown. Everybody's dream is to be a marine biologist in Australia, but it's all right. Keep going. Well, I actually spent a year in Wales and they discouraged me from following that path, which was unfortunate I, in some ways because I still love it, but I do love medicine. So it all turned out. I then went on to medical school at Duke, and really I've been at Duke ever since for some 40, over 40 years. I did internal medicine and then rheumatology training at Duke, and I decided at that time that I really had been bitten by the research bug. And in the third year of Duke Medical School, they have a very unusual curriculum, and they expose students to a whole year of research, and I loved it so much that I decided as a rheumatology fellow to go back and get a formal PhD. And it was my great luck to actually train um, subsequent to that with a wonderful Australian biochemist by the name of uh, Bruce Caterson, who I think came from Brisbane originally. And he developed numerous monoclonal antibodies to different connective tissue components. And that's really how I got my start in biomarkers because he was very generous in sharing his reagents and his knowledge. And it was a incredible opportunity. And then when he went um, and left University of North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill, 10 miles down the road where I went down, down the road to, to be with him, he went to Wales to um, continue his career. And I came back to Duke and started my lab in 1995, I think. Wow, it's a great story. And I'm sure you could probably tell a lot of stories about Bruce as well, and some of the uh, interesting songs that he's known to sing. But before we do that, can you just tell me what a typical day nowadays looks like for you? Sure. So I am well known not to be a morning person. My husband is very much a morning person. So when I wake up, I usually take a bit of time to get started, I, I try to first start by reading a spiritual writing, usually a Baha'i reading. And then I consciously try to think about what's one thing that's important that I would like to achieve for that day. And then once I've decided on that, many minutes will have passed and I might be ready to get up at that point so that I get up, uh, stretch, and I always go out what my family and my neighbors fondly refer to as jockeying. So I, I jock every morning for about 2.5 uh, miles. And then I come back and have my morning tea. And now I'm ready to get started. So at that point in time, since the pandemic, I have had my meetings with my lab members every morning on Zoom. Um, normally, they used to be in person, but Zoom seems to be very efficient and, and a wonderful solution to, to that. So I try to make sure everybody gets met with every week in person and has whatever issues and problems they need and, and encouragement that they need. And then I also, believing very much in exercise, try to go out twice in the day for 15-minute walks to break up the day like that. And during the pandemic, 
my husband and I got very interested in all the oak trees in our neighborhood. So we picked up lots of acorns and we learned how to determine if they were viable. And so we've been growing seedlings. We have 220 seedlings now. So we've been monitoring those on a daily basis. So that's a big part of the day, you know, just looking at nature and then come back and uh, try to read, you know, our usual day as a researcher, read a paper every day, think about the next branch you're going to put in write papers. And I think try to preserve time for thinking. That's that's very difficult to do, but I think that's part of it. And then at the end of the day, I really like to think about how did the day go and think about, you know, bring yourself to account each day and, and kind of figure out what went well, what, what could you do better, and then start all over again the next day. Fantastic description. And, you know, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And hopefully that'll be of interest to many of the listeners, and if not, provide some role modeling for uh, many of the potential clinicians out there who are listening to it as well. Now, I know you probably encompassed a little bit of this in that last answer, but there are some elements that I know that you do that you have interest outside of work uh, that you didn't cover in that answer. So when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? In the last 10 years, developed a passion for watercolor painting. And it, like science, is a very creative endeavor. So I try to do that on the weekends, a little bit every weekend. And I also have been participating in a women's chorus for the last 25 years. And as a soprano too, I've been singing throughout the pandemic on Zoom with my chorus members and our director has put together virtual cons- concerts that make us sound better than we ever sounded before, quite frankly, to be honest, but we do sound terrific on those Zoom casts. So anybody can look those up. <laughs> Wonderful. What's the link? Women's Voices Chorus of Chapel Hill. Fantastic. And I know your family has a particular interest in following solar and lunar events. Is that still something that you do? It absolutely is. In fact, um, my husband majored in astrophysics in college and our son is a spacesuit engineer for SpaceX. And um, we just got a new telescope. In fact, that's digital. So 10 devices can connect to it and it stacks the images so that they become more refined over time. So we plan to pull that out and have show and tells at the beach and in the neighborhood and things of that sort. But we're still figuring out how to how to use it but we're really excited about it. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, Virginia, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Well, I thought about this ahead of time and I just wanted to put it in perspective. I have for many years had a sign in my office, which is the Apollo 13 model. Failure is not an option. So based upon that, I came up with creative, perseverant, service-oriented being. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much for sharing. And having had the privilege of spending a bit of time with you, I can testify to the fact that that's very accurate and wonderful, wonderful qualities to have in someone. Now, the main content of today is really talking about biomarkers in osteoarthritis. But I think in in an effort to get there and in an effort to try to create some context for the questions that will follow, can you just help us to understand a little bit of the difference between illness and disease? It's a really great question. The old adage is that the illness is what the person has when they walk into the doctor's office and the disease is what they have when they walk out of the doctor's office. So illness actually is what the person experiences. It's in OA, it would be pain. 
It would be stiffness. It would be whatever dysfunction that they're experiencing. And the disease we think of as the driver of those. So it's what's underlying, what's, what's actually causing it, the biological process. And the reason that that is such an important concept um, when we talk about biomarkers is we like to think of the biomarkers as objective measures that are informing on the disease. And that if we can modify those biomarkers, we might be able to hit the disease at its core, at its biological underpinnings. And then the hope is that that is going to affect how the person feels and functions in the long-term, how their illness develops. Sensational. And obviously, before we get too far into this, what is a biomarker? So a biomarker is a objectively measured indicator of a biological process. So it could be an indicator of a normal process. It could be an indicator of a disease process. But most people tend to encounter biomarkers when they go to the doctor for their annual physical and they get their annual blood tests. So those would be typical biomarkers that are used as measures of healthy function. And probably one of the ones that people are the most familiar with is cholesterol to ward off heart disease long-term. Yeah, as you say, it's any objective measure. And so theoretically, it could be an imaging measure. But for our purposes, I think what we're really talking about for the most part is probably a biochemical measure that you may pick up in blood or urine. And for the purposes of osteoarthritis, what are the different types of biomarkers that are currently being focused on? Well, I know that imaging markers are very near and dear to your heart. And the biochemical markers are very near and dear to my heart, and which is why we are so synergistic. So one way that people could think about uh, biomarkers in general is um, a term that's been used in some of our literature, which is to characterize them as either wet or dry, with the wet being the biochemical markers that come from urine and blood and saliva, and the dry biomarkers being the imaging markers like an x-ray or an MRI or a bone scan. And that, by and large, can well describe, I think, the the major types. And the other thing that is important to think about when you think about the types of biomarkers is ones that are representative of the activity of the disease, that go up and down as the disease is waxing and waning, and other ones like an x-ray that show a cumulative change. Once you get to a certain level, no one expects it to ever go back again. So it's cumulative damage. And the two are really important together. And as you know, in osteoarthritis, we develop a categorization we call bipeds, which is a way we have of like a shorthand terminology we have of trying to figure out how useful any particular biomarker can be. What are the data behind it? For instance, the B stands for burden of disease. That's a biomarker that sort of informs on the total body burden, how much osteoarthritis you have in the whole body. And then the I is investigative. So these are sort of the new kids on the block that people are still developing. P is prognostic. These are biomarkers that have data to support the fact that they could predict what's going to happen, whether the person is going to worsen or whether the disease is going to stay static. Efficacy of intervention would be from bipeds, the E. It has to do with whether the biomarker is changing with the treatment. And then the D is diagnostic, which tells you you have OA versus some other kind of arthritis and S is safety. And so we found that to be a very useful shorthand for summarizing biomarkers in our field 
And the good news is that currently we do actually have, for research use, we have biomarkers that fit both wet and dry that fit all those different categories. Sensational. And we'll probably focus on the P, the prognostic, and the E, and the efficacy as we, as we go later into this particular conversation. But where do these biochemical markers originate from? What are their tissue sources? And what is it that they're actually measuring uh, from an osteoarthritic perspective? So we've come to call the joint an organ because it actually consists of a functional unit made up of multiple different types of tissues. So the three main types of tissues are cartilage, synovium, the lining of the joint, and the bone underneath. And they work in concert, and together they're in a balance. And it's actually all three of those tissues can produce biochemical markers and imaging types of changes that would inform on osteoarthritis. And so we really look to develop and have been trying to validate biomarkers that inform on all of those different tissues so that we can better understand holistically what's going on in a joint. And where do you see their greatest promise? And this may well be the work that we're doing together, but it may well be something else. And I guess particularly if you could expand on what their role might be in drug development specifically. So in the short term, I'm really enthused about the work that we've had the good fortune to do together, which is to try to identify biomarkers that are predicting people who are at high risk of disease progression in the next, in the subsequent two to three years. And the reason that is so important is that those are the people who could then be enrolled in a trial and they would be able to then help determine whether or not a drug is working or not. They're also the same people who are at most need of a treatment. So it's really a two-pronged approach there. So that in the short term is a very achievable goal. And we've been working on it for a number of years, but I think that the end is in sight, that we really do have a good handle on both imaging and biochemical markers that can identify those people. And the reason that's going to be so helpful is that one of the, one of the big challenges is in osteoarthritis trials, they have to be huge, they have to be long-term, they cost a lot of money, and it, a lot of companies then decide they just don't have the resources to stay the course and really do those big trials. But if you can narrow down the trials to those people who are most in need, who are most likely to show you whether or not the drug is having an effect or not, suddenly the costs become much less prohibitive the, the time course is much shorter. So the whole paradigm becomes a tractable one where there, there might be a success in terms of the drug development. That's a sensational explanation. And, you know, I think for people out there who are listening, we're really talking about the whole area of disease modification in osteoarthritis. So that's both modifying symptoms and the associated structural changes that may go along with that. And as Virginia was explaining, the biochemical markers that she's referring to provide a good insight into the more dynamic activity processes that are associated with the disease. And one of the huge reasons many of those trials have not succeeded to date has been the fact that they've recruited people who were in a quiescent, a quiet period of their disease and weren't progressing. And so that the, these biomarkers may provide a prognostic indication that these people are more likely to progress during the course of trial and, as Virginia suggested, lead to more efficient trials that may be able to be conducted over a shorter period of time. Now, 
one of the other areas that is of great interest in the context of osteoarthritis, particularly given that historically we've very much focused on the latter stage of disease, oftentimes when the joint is really markedly, structurally altered and mechanically deranged. What promise do biochemical markers have in picking up disease prior to, you know, even what we might see on a plain radiograph? It's a great question. I'm really keenly interested in trying to change the thinking around when we treat osteoarthritis. Many people may, may or may not know, actually, that cartilage doesn't have any nerves. And so there can be a long period of silent deterioration that's abnormal that then is not detected until you get collateral damage, either in the bone or in the lining of the joint reacting to the breakdown products from the cartilage. And the hope is that if we were actually able to treat before any of that damage occurred, that we would actually have a much greater chance of success. And it's not a crazy paradigm because we'd mentioned cholesterol earlier. Cholesterol is treated before heart attacks. Bone density is treated before a fracture in osteoporosis. And those are, can both be silent disease processes so my real wish is that we would be treating and diagnosing at that silent disease stage when we might have a much easier time of putting it back into a stasis and even regenerating the joint. So you ask, what, what are the chances of being able to identify that? There have been to date now five studies, four, and then in addition to one that we recently finished that just, just recently um, completed showing that as early as 10 years before an x-ray change, you can already pick up abnormal levels of biomarkers that are from the joint components, telling you that there's something amiss, something is wrong with the amount of breakdown of the joint. But as long as the idea is that we are most interested in treating illness, that is when it's already manifest as a not, no longer silent disease, we're going to be stuck in the paradigm of treating when it's a much later stage. So I think we're going to have to have a success treating illness and treating the later stage, and then people will feel, feel confident enough, and then the treatment may be safe enough that now you might be able to push it back and treat in those earlier stages. But we do have the ability to identify it. And in fact, as you well know, with imaging, magnetic resonance imaging can even detect changes before the x-ray changes. So that's that's early, earlier and gives you more promise of having an effect, I think, in terms of preventing those later stages. Marvelous. And, you know, as, as you suggest, it's an area of great, great promise. And, you know, another paradigm that we would hopefully adopt in time once we've got effective disease modifiers is, you know, the equivalent of, you know, monitoring cholesterol and cholesterol lowering therapy or blood sugar and diabetes or inflammatory markers in rheumatoid arthritis. But can you just tell us a little bit about I guess, what's been developed for monitoring disease activity as it relates to some of the disease modifiers currently being tested and trialed? Sure. So I can speak with authority on the biochemical markers. Might let you talk about the imaging markers. <laughs> From the biochemical marker perspective, one of the um, most well-validated markers that we have called um, CTX2 
is a breakdown product of cartilage that's on the joint. And it actually seems to be a very good predictor of people whose disease is quite active. And what's been a more recent and exciting development is that we've learned through studies of collagen and collagen biomarkers that not only is the disease a problem with breakdown, but it's a problem with inadequate repair. So there are other biomarkers of collagen that reflect the amount of new synthesis of collagen. And what we're finding is that people that are likely to progress and worsen are the people who have lower levels of the synthesis and repair. And this now suddenly makes sense in the context of a lot of the genetic studies that have been done on osteoarthritis that have shown us that there are mutations in growth factors that are poorly or not as well expressed in the cartilage as they should be and seems to predispose people to OA. So we have biomarkers for cartilage. We've had for a long time biomarkers for bone already because they were developed for osteoporosis. And we've seen that people who have high bone breakdown, similar to osteoporosis, are people who have the high risk for osteoarthritis progression. And then the third tissue, that cart covers cartilage and covers bone, the third tissue is the joint lining or the synovium. And what we see with osteoarthritis is that in active disease, the lining of the joint becomes inflamed. And we have quite a few inflammatory biomarkers that we can monitor for their effects. And one of the ones that has come to prominence is called IL-1. And uh, there have been some recent encouraging studies to suggest that if you can inhibit that cytokine, that inflammatory mediator, that you might even be able to decrease the risk of a joint replacement down the road. So bringing all these together, like I said before, the joint as an organ, where we have now a compendium of these biomarkers that can give us a more holistic view of what is going on. Sensational. And hopefully, as Virginia is explaining, in time, we'll be able to use these as measures of efficacy of treatment, in addition to providing some idea of prognostic risk of progression. Now, one of the letters in the bipeds classification is the D. Historically, I guess we've understood osteoarthritis to be a diagnosis that's made based on history and clinical examination and that there's little, if any, use for, for radiographs or blood tests. What are your thoughts on the diagnostic capability of these markers? I think that they hold great promise. We've looked at that question in some of our cohorts, and we've been surprised to find that it takes fewer biomarkers to tell us that the person has osteoarthritis than it does to tell us that the person is likely to have progressive osteoarthritis. So, it may not be as difficult a task as we expect it to be. One of the things that I find particularly intriguing was that there was a beautiful work that came from Sweden by Dr. Patrick Yoniford a couple of years ago, and he looked at different cartilages that um, he got from people who were getting joint surgeries, different parts of their body, and he was actually able to see that all cartilage was not created equal, that different cartilages have different components. They all share some core components, but then because they each have different mechanical functions, they seem to have some slight differences in terms of their components. And that gave me hope when I saw that, that not only might we be able to diagnose osteoarthritis, but we might be able to diagnose a specific type of uh, osteoarthritis 
from a blood test alone once we better understand specific components that each joint has uniquely. Sensational. And, you know, I think it's really important for people to understand that most of what Virginia is talking about are research tools. They're not currently clinically available. And what we're talking about in large part is prospective application of these. And it's, you know, it's a really exciting area and it's something that Virginia and I have been industriously working on for a long period of time, particularly with the regulatory agencies to see if we can get some of these qualified for use in trials in particular. Before we go too much further, it would be probably helpful to reflect on some of the limitations in this space. And you know, like imaging, one of the important areas here that we should probably mention is the discordance between what a person feels and what we can measure. How do biochemical markers rate in that regard? That has really been a great challenge. That it has been a constant challenge in biomarker research to so-called keep it real. In other words, is this clinically relevant? Does it really make a difference in the long term? Are we really treating the disease? Or is this just happens to be a handy test that doesn't have a lot to do with the, the disease? Because osteoarthritis can be very slowly developing, it has been a challenge to connect what is happening at the biomarker level to the long-term changes that are happening in terms of that illness component, how the patient really is feeling, functioning, and surviving. But we're getting there because with these longer-term studies that have been done that save specimens, we're able to go back and look at what the effect was of the biomarker in terms of its relationship to the long-term outcomes that really mean something to people. That is, did their pain worsen or were they able to get up and move more? It's also very complicated because sometimes when people feel better, then they start to move more and then their pain goes right back to where it was. So they may not have noticed much of difference in pain, but in fact, their function may have improved dramatically. So you actually have to look at the person, like we've been talking about looking at holistically, looking at the joint, but you have to look at the person holistically too, to try to get a whole, the whole picture, how's their sleep, their quality of life, and as opposed to just you know, dealing with that one measure that might not have changed that much just because they've started to do more. Yeah, it's a great explanation. And another area which I guess is commonly directed towards biomarkers as a potential limitation is the fact that oftentimes, particularly when you're measuring urine or, or blood measures, is that you're looking at total body breakdown or total body turnover of, of these particular markers. As distinct from potentially just related to one joint's turnover, which you might get from synovial fluid from the joint itself. But you've done some wonderful work, particularly in Johnston County, highlighting the systemic nature of this disease. And, you know, the fact that more often than not, this isn't just one joint in a person, but they'll likely have multiple joints involved and that you can get better indicators of that total body burden by doing some of these types of measures. Can you just expand on that a little bit better than I did? Absolutely. That was one of my very favorite studies that we've ever done. And in this particular study, the people had hand, hip, knee, and spine x-rays. And those x-rays were scored for the number of spurs that they had throughout the body and the amount of cartilage loss that they had throughout the body. And we looked at three biomarkers in particular, CTX2 being one of them that I mentioned earlier. And the relationship 
of the biomarker, the amount in the urine or the blood was very, very well correlated with the amount of osteoarthritis there was in the total body. It was, it was remarkable how well, how well they informed on the total osteoarthritis. So it, it gave me hope that if you give a drug that's against osteoarthritis, maybe it would affect multiple joints and those biomarkers would actually then be informing on whether or not the drug was effective in the whole body. But we tend to, our paradigm has been to look at the knee where we have very well standardized tools and imaging where we know that we can do things precisely. But maybe we're making life too complicated. Maybe most people have osteoarthritis in more than one place. And what we really need to do is to show that you can make them better overall. And I just recently got excited about reading a cancer biomarker paper where they pointed out that increasingly in the cancer field, people are interested in what they call pan tumor markers, which means biomarkers that actually can see any kind of tumor and that they're getting more and more interested in drugs that could actually treat multiple tumors as opposed to you know, a different drug for every different kind, one, and using these pan tumor markers, we already have pan OA markers. So we could actually look at OA in general in the person and how it's responding to a treatment. Yeah, trying to find that balance between targeting a particular joint and limiting potential toxicity of agents by local administration, we need to be mindful that that may come at the consequence of treating the disease more systemically and being able to measure the efficacy of that. Now, obviously, it's a really exciting area and one of great promise and one that's hopefully going to lead to great insights, particularly for drug developments and therapeutic developments. But how do we go from where we are now to get to prime time? And what do you think the next steps need to be in order for us to get to greater utility of this and greater understanding of the disease? It's known that if a drug development program uses a biomarker, they're much more likely to be successful. Right now, believe it or not, the chance of success of a drug going from the what we call phase one all the way up to phase three and approval is 8%. So it's important for people to realize that a large proportion of drugs that are being developed, they never make it. They never make it to the end. Biomarkers increase that uh, likelihood of success up to 26%, which is a huge, huge Im improvement. And now in the oncology field, more than half of all trials use biomarkers because they realize how important they are for identifying the um, individuals that are most in need of that particular treatment. So for prime time, I think that we need to be in the mindset that every trial is going to do their best to find tools that are supportive of the drug development program. So biomarker tools, imaging tools, and biochemical markers. And even if they don't use them to bank them away because they could be used for retrospective work. So like what you and I are doing together, we've gone back and asked existing trials, could we please use any samples that you've, and images that you've acquired from before that now we can try to take forward and develop these tools for the future. And that ends up being a very cost-effective way of improving the field. So really to get it to prime time, I think we have to do that universally. And we also need to have a partnership of academicians, 
and pharmaceutical companies and patients. Patients are extremely important. What is really is needed from their perspective? Um, do they think that these trials are optimal? What we heard in the United States at a patient forum that was sponsored by the Arthritis Foundation is that when asked about what was deemed the most necessary to you know, get us to something that, that was going to help, that what we heard universally was that people said, we've got plenty of stuff for pain. We really need stuff to affect the disease. And so I think together, it takes a village of people involved in osteoarthritis to really make it to prime time. Well, I'm happy to share that journey with you and continue to push that barrow up the hill, so to speak. And hopefully, hopefully we'll crack some of those acorns very soon and find some little kernels of gold. Now, is there anything else about biochemical markers that we haven't spoken about that you think would be really important to mention before we move on? I think that you managed to touch on a lot of them. One other important learning for me over the years was to realize that biomarker uptake in the clinic requires that it be actionable. So a lot of people will say, well, when can I get that test? Well, your doctor is not going to order that test unless they can do something about it. So it's a chicken and the egg phenomenon in our field. We need biomarkers to make the you know, drug development successful, but then you need the drug in order for the biomarker to be used. So the two really go together. And I think that although it has been probably slower than any of us have wanted, there has definitely been progress. And medicine as a whole has been moving toward the personalized medicine concept which is everyone could potentially be profiled in the future to figure out what would be the safest and, and most efficacious treatment for them. And so I see slow but steady progress. And I wanted to you know, impart hope to every one of your listeners that together we're gonna make it there and that it's really important to maintain that hope and to do everything you can with the tools that you have available currently to make your life better. That's incredibly heartening. And maybe I should start every day like this and have a conversation with you over Zoom, either before or after your short jog. And we can start inspiring each other one way or another. Now, <laughs> the next segment is the rapid fire round. So this is literally me asking you a quick question and you rejoining with whatever your quick response might be. So favorite book? The Brothers Lionheart by Astrid Lindgren. Lovely. Favorite movie? Star Trek number four, The Voyage Home, bringing the uh, humpback whales from the past into the future to get rid of the aliens who are mad because the humpbacks went extinct. <laughs> Dog or cat person? Cat. We have two. Favorite quote? The earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. We need to hear more of that, I tell you. What's your favorite food? Anything Italian. Do you have a bad habit? Definitely, it's buying too many art books that I don't have the time to read. Assuming there were no COVID, where would you next like to go on holidays? Well, not pandering here. I would love to go back to Australia, <laughs> but I'd also love to uh, stop by and see New Zealand on the way. I've never been there. You're welcome to come to Australia anytime. And I can only testify to the fact that New Zealand, I think, is probably the best country in the world, but I'm probably a little bit biased in that regard. Now, what superpower would you like to have? So I would have a social transforming superpower where I'd get rid of prejudice and everybody would work together. And that way we would overcome the challenges of the world. I wish you could 
have that superpower that would make a tremendous difference. Now, if you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? That is very easy. I would go back and I would meet the young Vincent van Gogh and I would tell him when he's painting not to suck on the tips of his brushes, which he used to do to create a point because then he won't get poisoned with cadmium, mercury and lead. And then his, he wouldn't have suffered as much as he did. Great philosophy. Now, what would you do if money wasn't an issue? I would invest in um, CO2 scrubbing technology so that we could have a quick solution to this terrible climate issue that we just heard this week from the UN is a code red for humanity. Yeah, that report is really a damning statement on what we're doing to the world. And hopefully we can do a lot more to preserve our world for both our generation and future generations. Now, Virginia, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? I would try to improve science teaching in schools because I, I strongly believe that if people learn more about how their bodies work and how science works, they would be able to combat misinformation much better and make uh, appropriate choices for themselves. So, so important, particularly with the type of information that's getting spread around at the moment. Now, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? I try to read a paper a day. It can be challenging, but that has been, that has been my, my goal at least. Yeah. No, and something I try to aspire to as well. And just so the listeners out there understand what Virginia means by paper, she's referring to a research paper, a manuscript, uh, as, a, as opposed to a glossy tabloid. Now, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? So, you know, I still see clinic patients and by and large osteoarthritis patients uh, because I feel that I could have more insight into their problems and hopefully help more in that way. But I find it incredibly frustrating to watch people's, you know, joints uh, worsen over time, some people's, and to, you know, not feel that I have treat treatments to the extent that I would like to have them. And I see my rheumatology colleagues, many of whom treat, by and large, um, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and they have tons of biologics that they can give that have miraculous effects. I really look forward to the day when we have a larger armamentarium of things that we could that we could treat people with. Yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement from the viewpoint of therapies available for people with osteoarthritis and, you know, heartened by the comments you've made before, but really just to reassure people, we're really on the cusp of major breakthroughs in that space. So, you know, I think continue to be optimistic about that. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on us, what would it be and why? Well, I would go back to my favorite quote. I would put the Baha'i quote, the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens on that billboard. Yeah, no, I'm very much a globalist and I love having a chance to chat to various people around the world and I guess focus on our commonalities as opposed to what I think tends to happen is to focus on our differences and intolerance grows. So is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis? I would definitely encourage people to keep moving. I think exercise is currently the best medicine we have. We know it works well. It can be tapered to the individual needs of that person, but to the extent possible, keep moving. Marvelous. Now, Virginia, it's been wonderful to have a chance to spend a little bit of time with you, and I look forward to our regular Zoom chats. Now I'm going to schedule every morning to just brush up on the inspiration. 
But thank you so much for sharing your wisdom insights and a little bit of time with us. It's brilliant. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. So it's a real privilege to talk to Virginia today about biomarkers in osteoarthritis. It's an area of active research and discovery and holds great promise for leading to better insights, particularly as it relates to therapeutic development. At present, it is a research tool. And at present, diagnosis remains a clinical diagnosis. But for us to make great inroads in particularly disease-modifying therapies for osteoarthritis, we need better biomarkers, we need better application of them and stratification of populations so that we target people more appropriately with these new therapies, which will likely come out in the next few years. Again, if you like the show, please do rate us. It makes a big difference. In addition, if you've got questions, please send them along. It's been a great privilege to spend a little bit of time with you again today, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.